am I going to do? I've watched it so many times and I keep having the same feeling. I think... I think I kind of like Spider-Man 3. But I feel like no one in the world feels the way I do. I just wish I had someone to talk to. What, what, what was that? Is someone there? Remember that part where there's that cool Sandman fight in the subway? So underrated. How about that time Peter dances down the street in his new black suit? So misunderstood! What about when Harry and Peter team up to fight Venom and save Mary Jane? So good. I kinda like Spider-Man 3. I want to talk about it too, Scott. That's why I've been looking for you. Looking? For, for me? Oh yeah. I know all about you. You do? Like what? Like the fact that we've recorded 245 podcasts covering every minute of Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, so if we stop now, it just doesn't seem right to me. Wait, that you, Zach? Look, I want to talk about Spider-Man 3. You want to talk about Spider-Man 3. Together, its bad reputation doesn't stand a chance. Interested? Yeah. But where can people find us? Oh, my spider sense is tingling, if you know what I mean. And it's telling me that they should look for Spider-Man Minute Season 3 on DuelingGenre.com or wherever they get their podcasts this summer. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're talking about Timothy Harrison and Nathan from two different Spider-Man issues, one titled The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man, and the other is Spider-Bite. And joining us in the discussion is producer Andrew. Yep. And uh, returning guest, John Dorowski. Hello. It's a family affair this week. Yes. <laughs> I'm wondering if I should come up with some sort of catchy phrase for greeting whenever I'm on. <laughs> Hail and well met. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a bit more info. Uh, as I said, we're discussing The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man, which was written by Roger Stern, with art by Ron Frentz, and inks by Terry Austin, and colors by Christy Scheel. It originally appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 248 in January 1984. We're also talking about Spider-Bite, which was written by Tom Taylor, with art by Juan Cabal, colors by Nolan Woodard and Federico Blee, and it was published in Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man number 6 in July 2019. So, quite a gap between uh, the... The Kid Who Collected Spider-Man in 1984 and Spider-Bite in 2019. They're very connected thematically. 32 years? Hold on, let us do the math on air. (laughs) No, never do math live. 32. It's easy. Um, Both tell the story of Spider-Man. You said 84. And 2019. 2019. 35 years. Goodness. Never do math live. Especially when you're on cold medicine, Andrew. Uh... Uh, both stories deal with Spider-Man comforting a child uh, who is ill. And both kind of do it as a twist, but we're just going to put that out here right now. <laughs> that's that's what, we're, what we're dealing with with both of these. Um, John, do you remember when you first came to either of these stories? Um, I don't know when I came to the kid who collected Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man is one of my favorite characters. I've collected a lot of Spider-Man comics. And so just in learning about Spider-Man history and lore, it came up as one of the classic stories 
I have no I have no recollection of what I read or when I have encountered it. Uh, with Spider Bite, that got a lot of buzz before it was even published uh, because the um, what's the term for it? Preview. The the preview. The yeah, previews um, or the promotional material or. Yeah. Um, the previews catalog, right? Yeah, I think Is so. Is it just called previews? <laughs> well, yeah. The preview announced that Spider-Man was getting a new young sidekick. And so there was... they were, Marvel was putting out uh, awesome press releases ge- to generate interest on this. And then when it came out, uh, a lot of people were talking about it. And so um, I wasn't buying comics at that moment. But fortunately, when I started to get back into them, and local comic book shop had a copy on the shelf... Which was apparently a bit of a surprise because uh, one, well, skipping ahead to the trivia, uh, because of all that buzz, the issue actually sold out, which is very rare for modern comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I heard about it on iFanboy, and I think I asked, "Are you picking up comics? Did you get this one?" And you're like, "Nope, but I'll, I'll, I'll see." And, and so when, once you got it, I read it. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be after one. <laughs> we, this is going to be one we have to talk about on the podcast." Yeah, and so. When you asked to do this one, I said, well, we should do it with the uh, boy who collected Spider-Man. Yeah, which, um, kind of like you, I, I've always known of it as one of those classic Spider-Man stories. I am going to guess that I first heard about it in Wizard Magazine, probably in a column talking <laughs> yeah. about Classics. Uh, you know, iconic stories for different characters. Um, because, you know, back in the day, there weren't digital catalogs where you could just click on and read. And there weren't even really good trade paperback, trade paperback reprints of these stories. Yeah. Like, you just had to find out that there were classic stories through things like Wizard Magazine or through trading yeah. cards that had, like, famous stories and told you what issue numbers they were in. You would look up the catalogs in the comic books. That were the like, price guide. Yeah, and <laughs> or, or, where they, or they would just, like, you buy, here, here are the prices for the titles if you want to send in for them. Yeah, East Coast Comics mail order. Uh, oh. <laughs> the, the, those sorts Doing of things. mail order stuff is yeah. rough. Yeah, Andrew. What about you? Do you remember? Um, I, I only read them for this recording, but um, in reading, particularly in reading uh, the Boy Who Collected Spider Man, I remember in the '90s cartoon they did kind of an homage episode well, to that. that. It's that not is, um, not what? not centered on a kid with cancer, but a kid who's in danger and who's a big fan of Spider Man. Yeah, that is a little more trivia that I found. Okay. Skipping ahead, it's a two part story from Spider Man: The Animated Series. Make a Wish and Attack of the Octobot uh, in the third season. They did change th- some things up uh, in that those episodes, the girl is, or the child is a girl named Tanya, who mentions she has a friend named Timmy. So ah. they do acknowledge the roots. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's a definitive homage. And, and I think, they, well, it says here, you made a note of it, that uh, you see a plaque that says the Wish Come True Foundation for Terminally Ill Children. So right. Well... Thanks for spoiling the story. Uh, <laughs> I already we mentioned. Haven't, we haven't yeah. even gotten to that. You just said there was a twist at the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I remember that. And when I was reading The Boy Who Collected Spider-Man, I was like, oh, I remember this stuff from, from the 90s animated and, series. So it's been kind of a consistent theme. Like People have recognized for a long time, this is an important element of the Spider-Man mythos. And worth say, retelling. Uh, We're not sponsored, but you can find those episodes on Disney Plus now. Yes, uh, and you could find these issues on the Marvel Digital Unlimited. Yes. I think mm-hmm. they'd, they'd both be available at this point uh, yeah. on there, I'm pretty sure. Um, so before we move on to the summaries, 
Uh, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. I think I skipped a little bit of trivia that you had found, John, so why don't you give us that yeah. trivia before I do so the summaries. We had uh, already uncovered some of the trivia. So, as I said, this is a... Uh, the Boy Who Collected Spider-Man is very famous as one of the best Spider-Man stories, but it was actually the backup in an issue. It wasn't the main story, which had Spider-Man fighting the villain Thunderball. Classic member of the Wrecking Crew, which works as a, like a group name, but once you hear that one of the members is called Thunderball, you're like, nah, less impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and according to Stern, the writer, said, Partly, I'm sure that sprang from my desire on my part to do a short human interest story in the style of Will Eisner, one of the great comic book creators, period. Uh, that's why the story is partially advanced through newspaper clippings. I was trying to be Eisner-esque. And they, there was a follow-up story called A Spider-Man Carol with writer Danny Fingeroth and artist Ron Garney, where they mention Tim Harrison's death, uh, while he is meeting, Spider-Man is meeting Tim's brother, Joey. And that story was published in the 1991 Marvel Holiday Special. Sounds like a real pick-me-up. <laughs> Perfect for the holidays. Yeah. By the way, the kid did die. <laughs> yeah. In case you were wondering if in this universe with gods and scientific super geniuses, anyone took the time to heal this child? No. No, they did not. No, not. Uh, and Well, considering it's called a Spider-Man Carol, not the Tiny Tim twist here. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, as John noted, The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man was a, uh, a backup story, so it's only 11 pages long. So a pretty quick summary for that issue. Um, and the story inserts parts of a newspaper article about a boy named Timothy Harrison, who is a huge fan of Spider-Man and collects any newspaper or magazine articles about Spider-Man that are published. So you kind of get, um, you know, two, three paragraphs of a newspaper print story, uh, and then you see Spider-Man interacting uh, with this kid. Um, and, uh, when Spider-Man is visiting Tim, he looks to be about eight years old, a young, young boy, uh, for sure. Um, and Spider-Man shows Tim his powers and recounts his origin story for him, uh, and, and just takes some time to kind of connect one-on-one with this child. And we're reading this article and all we're really told so far is that Tim is Spider-Man's biggest fan. And it's not quite clear why Spider-Man is taking the time to do this at this point. Um, and as Spider-Man is leaving, Tim asks if Spider-Man will tell him who he really is. And Spider-Man says he cannot reveal his secret identity. And Tim says he'd never tell anyone who Spider-Man is for as long as he lives. Tim promises. Spider-Man then takes off his mask. So this has to be, like, a real surprise for readers. Because Spider-Man is... is I, I mean, if you see the movies, Spider-Man's mask is off every every act. Um, in, in a public setting, basically. Uh, but, but in the comics, it was really rare for a reveal and this um, was, to happen. This was back in the 80s when secret identities really mattered. Yes. Uh, so Spider-Man takes off his mask and reveals he's Peter Parker, the photographer who took most of the photos that are in Tim's collection. As Spider-Man le- leaves, we see the last part of the article, where Tim says he hopes to meet Spider-Man someday, and the column writer closes the article uh, by writing, I hope Tim gets his wish. I hope that somewhere out there Spider-Man reads these words. I hope that he takes the time to visit a very brave young man named Tim Harrison, and I hope he does it soon. You see, Tim Harrison has leukemia, and the doctors only give him a few more weeks to live. Now we're going to jump up to uh, the comic book from last year, 2019, uh, called Spider-Bite. 
And it opens with Spider-Man losing a battle to Dr. Octopus when a kid dressed like Spider-Man introduces himself as Spider-Bite and drives Doc Ock away with his own superpowers uh, that are very much Spider-Man's superpowers, just in miniature form. Spider-Man is trapped under rubble, and he needs Spider-Bite's help to escape. Then they catch up to Dr. Octopus, and they see he's teamed up with all of Spider-Man's enemies. They are the Sinister 60. Spider-Man and Spider-Bite fight them all. They win, but then Spider-Bite starts coughing. The art changes, and we see that Spider-Man is still himself. But Spider-Bite is just a kid in basically a kid's made mask. Uh, and the uh, they, uh, the city that they've been fighting in is actually made up of cardboard boxes. And the villains are all dressed, uh, are all just adults dressed in simple costumes. They are in a hospital. Spider-Bite is named Nathan, and his parents say it's time for him to go rest. And Spider-Man says that saving the city is exhausting work. Then Nathan yells, I don't want to go to bed. And then he starts crying and apologizing for ruining everything. Spider-Man assures him that he didn't ruin anything and then chats with Nathan, Nathan's mom and dad while Nathan is taken back to his room. They thank Spider-Man for doing this and apologize for Nathan's outburst. And Spider-Man says, it's fine. Nobody wants to go to bed when they're having fun. And his mom says, it's not that. He, uh, he's worried he won't get up again. Spider-Man looks in at Nathan and asks his parents if Nathan has a coat. Then he goes and asks Nathan if he had fun being Spider-Man for a day. Nathan says it was awesome, and Spider-Man says, good, here's the thing, your day is not over. And then there's a final full-page spread of Spider-Man swinging through the city with Nathan in his arms. Those both kind of get you. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think we should talk about um, each individually for a little bit, and then maybe compare the two. Uh, might be the best way to approach this. Um, the kid who collects Spider-Man, it reminded me very much of um, the Paul Harvey rest of the story kind of twist. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, he had a radio show, and I, I looked it up, and I can't remember the exact years it was, but it was like for decades, Paul yeah. Harvey had a radio show that then was also like adapted into books, where you're kind of given like this snapshot of life, and then the rest of the story like gives you a twist, where like it's really Walt Disney. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, something something that makes you and, reassess. And that little boy grew up to be yeah. so and so. Yeah. And that makes you reassess everything that's come before. And the story being published in, you know, 1984 and, uh, you know, at the, I, I, from what I, I gathered, like the Paul Harvey phenomenon was, was very much part of the pop culture zeitgeist. It felt like that kind of the short story to me. Yeah. But, uh, the other thing is that as a short story, it's really a recap of Spider-Man. He's, mm-hmm. they're using him talking to a child to, present all the information you need to know about Spider-Man. Here's his powers. Here's his origin. Here's how he does stuff with the spider sense. Here's his secret identity. Which was really important. Um, like, like modern readers sometimes complain that, like, origins get rebooted all the time. Like, we're told, we're told the origin story again. But back in the day, they would reprint versions of the origin stories every few years because the assumption was there are new readers who've never had a chance to read this because there yeah. were, again, no trade paperbacks, no online digital collections where you could go find this stuff. And so, as this 11-page backup, it... It works as this, you know, uh, uh, twist, short story with a twist um, that's going to tug at your heartstrings, but also, like you said, provides the foundation for new yeah. readers as to who Spider-Man is, what his powers are, how they all work. Yeah. Here's everything you need to know about Spider-Man wrapped up in this uh, short story. So since uh, they're giving all this information, let's talk about how they actually uh, bookend, let's say, the presentation, which is about talking to a child. Mm-hmm. which is uh, partly it's the ideal audience for Spider-Man. That's the kind of who they were aiming for. They want, and kids do get really excited about Spider-Man. And so saying like this eight-year-old, both collecting all these stories about Spider-Man and then getting the scoop on what the origin and powers are, uh, that is a partly a stand-in for the reader. of like Either 
this is your first time encountering the story, you should be as excited as this kid. Or remember how excited you were when you discovered this stuff? And rereading this, I actually did get very excited because they don't tell stories about the origin like this anymore where they explain uh, like what web shooters are and how they work, and they don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, an established uh, part of the protagonist podcast uh, canon that I love like the cutaways of buildings that show uh, where all the rooms are. And, and this like explanation of the web shooter definitely falls into that where, mm-hmm. where it's, uh, I, I loved it both when it was like, here's one page. Cause we had an extra page of story at the end and didn't fit yeah. in. So here, here's a quick explanation of Spider-Man talking through his web shooter, which they would do back in the day. Uh, or this one where it's like Peter Parker explaining to a kid. Here's when I do the double tap. That's when the web shoots. Cause if I just made a, f- if it was just one hit, anytime I made a fist, this, yeah. you know, yeah, there's the, a the, chance that it could, the, the, the web shooter would be going off. So I've always got to do the two fingers out, the two fingers in doing the double tap and uh, even diff- like different pressures will give a uh, shootout different styles of webbing yeah uh, from the web shooter and it's really great I mean Joseph um, you and I were on the most recent season of um, Spider-Man Minute um, from Dueling Genre and and they talked a lot about the level of exp- explanation that becomes satisfying and there's sort of a balance there's like a bell curve of if you have no explanation and you're just like it's it's magic science and that's <laughs> all you've got then you're like okay cool and if you have a lot of explanation, then it can be really satisfying. And if you're somewhere in the middle, then you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and this kind of issue gets you into that like deeper, deeper explanation where it's like, I knew Spider-Man's web shooters worked. I was fine. Magic science. He shoots webs. Got it. Um, but then you do this one where it's like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. And I appreciate knowing more in this way that like actually works. And I remember loving just reading... Um, you know, massive sections of Wikipedia or, or the old Marvel um, database that they had for characters because they'd have all these details about how their powers work because there's decades of content. And so you've got all these things. Like, people complain about Spider-Man with his web swinging, you know, like, how does he hit the buildings? And so somebody at some point has said, and so it's it's canonized, it's like, oh, well, his spider sense helps him aim, right? <laughs> and so they just kind of, like, hand-waved it. But it's like, but I appreciate knowing that. And then anytime somebody brings it up, it's like, how does he always find a spot? It's like, oh, well, Spider-Sense lets him do that subconsciously. It doesn't take a lot of attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even going back a little further than the online databases, how Joe and I got into comic books was actually collecting the cards in the early 90s. Yeah. And it would just have a little biography, a little bit about their powers. And it would just be this sense of wonder how does this all fit together? Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, and then it also like uh, give you like the rating of like their power, uh, th- their strength on a scale of one through 10. Like Hulk was the 10 and thing mm-hmm. would be a 10 and yeah. Uh, yeah, so Captain like America strength, would be like an eight or dexterity, seven. Dexterity, yeah, intelligence, agility, psychic powers. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, which uh, some of those, like, I remember, they don't line up very well. When you like the... read about how these are being employed, you're like, that character is stronger than that one. I, I don't think so. I remember there was like one set and it was specifically X-Men stuff and it had, like a win loss percentage. And so it's like <laughs> yeah. apocalypse wins, losses, ties <laughs> against the X-Men. And I was like, who went through and like added that all up? And is it like by issue? Cause it was in the hundreds. And also how do I get that job is what we were thinking. <laughs> yeah, how do I get to read this up and write down all these facts? Yeah. Do the statistical analysis of comic books. Well, Joseph, you got to do some of that. Yeah. You did, you know, appearances of characters on covers and broke it down. It will also do like what uh, percentage of like X-Men characters. Uh, like I was looking at race and gender, like mm-hmm. what percentage of the time are heroes, white males, mm-hmm. <laughs> what percentage of the time are the villains, the, the characters of color. And let's just say, historically, we still have some correction to do <laughs> uh, <laughs> in that area. Um, what about, do you feel like we get to know the character of Tim? For me, 
the answer is a little bit no, and the character is more there just to tug on our heartstrings than to really come to appreciate well, who this is. Like he said, uh, he's the stand-in for the reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time of asking those questions that, as a reader, you might want answered of, yeah. all right, you know, or just as a reviewer, like, all right, what is your origin? How did you get your yeah. How do they work? So there is a lot of blank slate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I think part of it is, um, like, Yes, I see the standing that you're talking about, but like I don't have a whole lot of personality. Yeah, uh, no. you know that comes through and for you get you get some things um, which I think are particularly analogs for the comic book reader. There's a level of dedication and interest. Like oh, he's, he's really committed. It's like the super look, fan. Like I went to my neighbor's trunk of old magazines or, or of old newspapers to try and find you know this first appearance or of the, you. Uh, and so what like they, they, call they, they the kinetoscope is that yeah, what it was? Yeah, and so they have all these things <laughs> before where it's VHS. Like, yeah, um, where. He's doing the comic book collector thing. Like, go to the people you know, look through their old junk, and yeah. and find mm-hmm. what you're missing. And they just use newspaper instead of comic book. And so, for a lot of people, I think that's a very similar thing, but they made it different enough mm-hmm. to, to be interesting. It ties into the title of the story, The Boy Who Collected Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. It's, that's a sta- si- literally signaling, this is for all the people who collect who, Spider-Man. Who are collecting these issues. Yeah, yeah, the obsessed fan that mm-hmm. wants every issue of Spider-Man. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I think... You've got you know that um, that signal of dedication, mm-hmm. motivation, um, effort, right? Which is not a, exactly blank slate, but matching who they expect the audience and the audience surrogate to be. No, yeah. I also say along with that, making a kid, they do play that up, and it makes sense because when you're a child, and Andrew, your kids are too young for this, but Joe, if you're probably at the point where. They can become obsessed about a topic and try and learn everything they can about that one topic. It's true. And for this boy, it was, I will learn everything there is to know about Spider-Man. That's, so you talking about that has just reminded me of that experience when when I was a kid. Because we all had that. That's why we were reading the backs of those those trading cards. um, And reading Wizard Magazine and reading comics and everything. And there's a really, and this might not really be relevant to the conversation, but it just like struck me like there is a tough transition from like childhood into adulthood with that when you realize I will not be the expert. Like I will not be the person who knows the most about this. There's always going to be stuff that I don't know. Yeah. And I kind of hate that. And you have to abandon it in a sense. that I know all this stuff and it's none of it's marketable. (laughs) Well, I mean, because as a kid, like within your peer group, you could be the kid who knows the the most about the Hardy Boys. Yeah. You know, who who, who's read all the Hardy Boys books and knows, you know, the ends of out of that. Or you could be the space kid, the one who knows all the planets. I was probably the comic books and superhero kid. But but then there was a point where it's like, not anymore. Yeah, both both as adults and then also with social media. Yeah. It's like, mm, okay. <laughs> like you said, there's I always mean, someone get, who's more And then you get the expert. The yeah. real dream scenario, which is Pablo Hidalgo, who actually gets to decide what counts in Star Wars. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I was also going to say, like, at some point you realize none of us will know as, about, as much about Superman as Mark Wade does. Yeah. <laughs> who has memorized Clark Kent's social security number. <laughs> um, but I was just going to say, with, with Tim, I, I just felt... Like, it's only 11 pages, so there is a space issue, and like you're saying, the, the real goal of the story is really provide another foundation for Spider-Man and then do the heart, heart, heart uh, tug on the heartstrings at the end. Um, he's a little bit too perfect <laughs> of a kid who's dying of cancer. Like, he's, he's just mean, there to ask all the right questions to tell yeah. these stories. No one ever seems to portray a kid who's dying of cancer as... You know, a bully or well, yeah. a pain in the butt. But, but even, uh, like, in Spider-Right, we get the outburst of emotion from exhaustion yes. and, and, and like, fear. raw fear. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's none of that with Tim. It's just, here's a happy boy. Yeah, it's 
It's a very Golden Age kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a G-Shucks kid. And then they do oh, that. yes! That, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, he'd be at home in Mayberry. <laughs> but then they do the twist at the end, and that is for sentimentalism, which mm-hmm. is one of the things that connects these two stories. Yeah, is definitely. That, uh, they are trying to manipulate emo- you emotionally. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, I... I like, I talk with um, students uh, when I'm talking about, like, film theory and criticism and we, and we talk through like some of the ways that skilled directors manipulate their audience through ways that are subconscious often to us as an audience but once you start to spot them they're like oh I see what they're doing and I say the word manipulate feels very there's uh, a lot of antagonistic yeah. yeah but but good art is manipulative it's supposed to be it making us feel things <laughs> yeah it makes you go through the experience and, and so sometimes when we like you say like the, yeah the the plaque at the end that's there to manipulate us in the last line of the uh, it's there to manipulate us but at the same time it's it's successful at making you feel that sentimentality yes i'm gonna point out that uh vox popcast had a recent episode i don't have the number in front of me but if you just go back a few weeks on their feed they did a whole episode. It'll be several weeks by the time this episode drops. Maybe right. a couple months. <laughs> well, within the last year, Fox Popcast <laughs> did an episode about sentimentality and sentimentalism. And uh, I recommend listening to that. It's really good. But they, part of what they talk about is uh, sentimentality isn't just about manipulating your emotions. Part of it is nostalgia. It's supposed to help you remember how you felt, which is what the first half of the story is of that excitement of about discovering everything about Spider-Man. And then part of it is Manipulating your emotions. Yeah, like and to the sadness the that life is not fair and there are children who have these incurable diseases. There are children yeah. who die who, sh- like, well, I need to, no child should die. And there are children who die every day. Yeah. And it's it's hitting you there. Um, and it's it's successful. Um, I For me, I, like, right before we started recording, Andrew, was, I, we were talking about which one was our favorite. You said you preferred the kid who collected Spider-Man. I think so. Yeah. And I think I prefer Spider-Man, the, the more modern one. And obviously some of that is going to be there's, there's different sensibilities in the storytelling that And some happened. of it could have been, like, the order that I was reading them. Right. You know, it, it could be any number of things. It's not like I definitely yeah. feel like yeah. one is way better well, than the other. Like, well, they, and they both do the thing. I think they're both going to be classics that get referenced yeah. all the time for Spider-Man. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, like, I was very excited when they were doing all the answers to the questions and showing the stuff. Um, but that's not a story. Mm-hmm. Spider-Bite is a story. Yeah, I think that's maybe the difference. Like, this is... Uh, the, the kid who collected Spider-Man is um, how, what, what do you call it? Like it's a, it's uh, a Wikipedia kind of like it's, it's like a travel log, but yeah. a, a, a life log. Yeah, uh, but with a twist at the end, like with yeah. a sad twist, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you get like your classic Spider-Man stuff. You get his guilt. Um, <laughs> you get his moodiness. Like Spider-Man, a- as as much as people you know like criticize it in the third Spider-Man film, the third Raimi film, like. Spider-Man has a lot of emotional turmoil at his core. Like, the guilt is kind of Oh, that thing. is his motivation, yeah. his yeah. guilt. And, and they kind of, like, don't dig into that a ton a lot of the time with, like, the, the extreme emotional turmoil. This is actually something that I think um, the Andrew Garfield films did well. Like, Spider-Man gets pretty emotional a lot in that. Like, he does a lot of, like, clutching at his chest, like, it hurts kind of emotions, which yeah. you don't get in... Every Spider-Man. Yeah, the uh, I mean, if you look at your some of your classic superheroes, you can kind of point out like motivations that lots of the other characters are now going to be somewhere on the spectrum. Where Superman, it's morality. This yeah, is like the good thing. Morality. Captain America, same thing. Uh, Batman, revenge. He's getting revenge on all crime for taking his parents away from him. <laughs> like that's it's anger, it's crime, it's motivate. You know, that's what his motivation. And Spider-Man, it's absolutely guilt is why he goes well, out and does what he does. Um, I think the less than guilt, it's uh, redemption. It's mm-hmm. the hope for redemption. Yeah. in Spider-Man, and there's a wonderful panel in the uh, 
in the boy who collects Spider-Man, where Spider-Man has just confessed about his origin and all the guilt he feels, and the kid comforts him. He's like, "It's not that bad. You'll be able to, you know, you'll be able to get over this." And then you get the end. He's like, "Wait, this kid with leukemia was comforting Spider-Man <laughs> like, because Spider-Man, maybe you should be comforting him." <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that quite adds. <laughs> it's a bit like when you step back in in Star Wars when uh, Princess Leia is comforting <laughs> Luke about the old space wizard that he's known for a half day that just died, and she just watched her whole planet get destroyed mm, by the yeah. Death Star, and and she's the one putting a blanket around his shoulders and <laughs> uh, you know giving him the support. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Spider Bite, um, which is the uh, the one that uh, for me, like, it, it very much played in. You remember several years ago, there was the Bat Kid Make a Wish. Yeah. Where, like a lot of Seattle is, let spy the yeah. the kid be Batman for a day. Clear homage to that. Yes, absolutely. That's the. I think it also connects. Um, Marvel's done a number of times. Um, specific issues to honor specific kids. And I didn't know if this was going to be one of those that was a specific kid, but they did, um, I mean, it was like 10 years ago, but they did um, a special Hawkeye thing for a kid with a, with a hearing aid because Hawkeye is hearing impaired. And so there was a special mm-hmm. you know event and they put the kid in, into the comic book. And also well, they like create a superhero identity for yeah, the kid. Yeah. yeah. And because so they, he, he was, he had a, one of the big hearing the aids. Cochlear, the cochlear. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah the full, one he can't full hide. Info. And he was really embarrassed about that at school, and so Marvel said, "No, this is a superpower." Yeah, and um, and so there's there is a strong tradition in history of this um, social good. Yeah, that um, comic books have done. And I think why one reason I like Spider Bite a little bit more than the kid who likes Spider Man, which again I like them both, <laughs> uh, is for me this is saying something about why superhero stories matter. Whereas this other one is like, here's a foundation for who Spider Man is, and now you're gonna feel sad for the kid that just learned all that. This one is saying. Superhero stories can matter because they make kids have hope. Like, uh, like, 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 even just that. If that was all superhero stories did, it'd be worth having superhero stories around. If it could make a kid with a terminal illness feel excitement and joy, superhero stories are great. Or even like I remember um, a while ago, our mom was talking to us that she was at a doctor's office and there was a little kid who was wearing a Batman mask and cape and was running around and he came up and said. Like, I'm Batman to her, and she talked to him like he was Batman for a minute. And then, like, a little, uh, I, I may be messing this up a little bit, but what I remember my mom saying is that there was, uh, like, an older sister who was a little embarrassed. And it's like, he doesn't talk to anyone unless he says he's Batman. And, she, and like, the, the fact that this made-up identity can give that kid confidence. Yeah, it's to helping go... him deal with an anxiety or a fear or distress yeah. of some kind. Like, that is, that that's important because at some point, hopefully, he will understand, like, okay, but, like, when I put on the mask, that doesn't actually change anything. I really could talk to people. Yeah, yeah. but but so the, like I, I think Spider Bite. This story is saying something about Spider Man as a character who offers hope, inspiration, and escape. Right. Well, there are two things I want to bring up. One is that uh, you skipped over this in your summary, but the with this uh, play acting with Spider Bite that they do, it's on a mission. Dr. Octopus has stolen the heart of New York and it's in this box. And the box keeps, keeps getting passed around to different villains, ending up with Stilt Man, who the kid thinks is the awesomest super villain. <laughs> the ultimate villain. Yeah, the ultimate super villain is, super, is Stilt Man, who can, only has extending legs that make him go higher. No, nobody has yet had the gall to attempt him in film. Because how could you ever get that right? Um, but then, of course, as part of the play acting, they, of course, defeat the villain and reclaim the heart of New York City and. So part of when they're sitting down and they start to have that art change of the background transitioning to cardboard from the real world look, uh, they're talking in Spider-Man X, well, what, what's in the box? What is the heart of New York City? And, he, and the kid opens up and he says, it's you. 
he has this action figure of Spider-Man. It's like, you're the heart of New York City. The New York City won't survive without you. And so there's that uh, kind of inspirational message for the kid of saying that you are what gives me hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that idea of hope, uh, Joe, if you mentioned this, there was an article, I think it was Forbes, where uh, DC Studios basically said, we don't know what to do with super- Superman in film. We like we can't figure out these stories. And It'd be so interesting if you took, oh, the S is a symbol for hope, and actually did something. Well, that, that. Was, that was what happened. It was a dozen comic book writers responded to the article, and they all said, you make him about hope. That's how you make a good Superman film, is you make him about hope. And that's what's happening in these stories, in both of these stories, is Spider-Man's doing that same role of he's about hope. And I was thinking about that, of that message about hope, and uh, one thing I twigged on was... In the 90s, uh, which is sometimes called the Dark Age of comic books and known for its grim and gritty aesthetic. And Spider- pouches. Yeah. Spider-Man never went grim and gritty. He had Venom, his counterpart, who, right. who did that. Mm-hmm. But Spider-Man himself, even when he was replaced by a clone, we're not going to go into that right now. <laughs> it, uh, wasn't, it wasn't. It was the same character. It was still pretty much you know, about, uh, well, he couldn't fall into that grim and gritty trap he, because he's about hope. I will just say, I do remember one Chrome-covered, uh, I think Web of Spider-Man number 100 cover where he got spider armor. Uh, it was all metal. I mean, everyone had to yeah, 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 have your armor. I'm not saying he didn't fall into the trap of the Dark Age. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm saying he never went into yeah, that no, grim and gritty. No, I agree with that. And, 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 and I think some of that is, like you said, Venom siphoned yeah. you know, a lot of this off yeah, where Spider-Man... Well, or, basically... They had to create another character to do that to, for to the be 90s yeah. uh, because they couldn't figure out how to have Spider-Man do it because that's not part of his character. They also didn't go into bandoliers with pouches yeah. and, so and shoulder actually, pads. Actually, there's another transformation where he well, does do that. <laughs> but not not to the extent of some characters. No. And it was temporary. <laughs> um and, and I also think um, with the Spider-Man issue, I, I think Nathan, like we said, is a little more fleshed out as a character because you get that... In both the, the yelling... Uh, the moment where he yells, which is such a kid thing to do, to have like mm-hmm. this, this moment of a, a high emotional outburst, but then overreact to the consequences of that high emotional outburst, uh, because I, I, it's very normal for kids in stressful situations to have that, and we find out how stressful his situation is. But well, then also, it hits home so much more when the parents say, like Spider-Man says, well, of course he doesn't want to go to bed. He was having fun. And the parents say, oh, no, he's scared he's not going to wake up. And that's when you're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so you have, in, instead of just like, the anxiety and discomfort of, you know, ending a fun day. It's also uh, this existential dread mm-hmm. that he's feeling. And, and Spider-Man reacts to that through his mask, which is a great piece of artwork where they have just a quiet panel where you realize like he's processing that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they use like it in, in comic books, it can be hard to do time <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Uh, like there's a whole chapter in Scott McCloud's understanding comics about how, this kind of works, and sometimes it does. It doesn't. It doesn't work. But they did a beat of, uh, you know, the parents saying that, and then, like you said, uh, a reaction of Spider-Man just standing there, and you feel somehow, even though it's just like a, it's a static panel sitting there, like you feel the silence, like you feel the weight of the silence of Spider-Man, like you said, processing this and figuring it out. And then it's a great character moment in both of these. Like Spider-Man saying, "Okay, I'm going to show you who I am." Like that's a good character moment for Spider-Man. But uh, this one also, where he says, "Well, does he have a coat?" Because his day's not over. Well, that's because that's what a hero will do. Mm. Um, and talking about that uh, timing thing, there was also another thing that impressed me with the boy who collected Spider-Man was, I think it's a short story, and at the very end, Spider-Man has just revealed his identity, and he leaves, and there's three panels of, his, of him leaving uh, the grounds of this place. And so it's like, 
as a reader, you're feeling the time passing, you're feeling that weight, and you're starting to, you twig to, oh, there's something else coming in these last panels. Yeah, it's... it's Something else has to happen It's a cinematography thing in... It's static image. It's like the tracking shot. Yeah. yeah. Like, like a slow tracking shot to end a movie. And then they're it's gonna, like, what's it going to land on? And then it's going to pan down to the plaque and yeah. we're going to see, you know, that it's, it's, it's the cancer wing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they reveal that he, that, uh, to me has leukemia. Yeah. And, and in the spider bites, the last shot is the full page, uh, image of Spider-Man swinging with this boy curled up in his arms, mm-hmm. which, which is a really great image. I wish the boy had a hat. Well, <laughs> yes. also, also it might be something of. Especially, well, he should have a hat, especially since Spider-Man asked, does he have a coat? Yeah, and <laughs> but, a hat. <laughs> uh, that might be one of the reasons why you like the uh, Spider-Bite a little bit more, because uh, Boy Who Collects Spider-Man ends on the down note, mm-hmm. uh, the revelation, whereas this was the revelation, and then what does the hero do next? Yeah, what's he, the he, next step? He goes and beats heroic for the kid again. Mm-hmm. And so that last image leaves you on the high note. Yeah, and uh, for uh, Juan Cabal, he nailed that. That image. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, it's a really great... And also the colors, which again, that's uh, Nolan Woodard and Frederico Blee. The The color on this last this last is, image... Is the bright Spider-Man colors with the sun in the background. It's it's a really great, warm yeah. aesthetic. Well, and, and, well, and throughout this, I want to also compliment the art of like that, that transitioning from Spider-Man fighting Doc Ock and the Sinister 60, which is such a well, great moment to hear Sinister 60. Because Spider-Man, if you don't know, fights the Sinister 6 all the time. It's and, it, and it's six totally villains. changing. And yeah. also Spider-Man has a million villains. Well, it's, Like, if you've watched the movies, you have not gotten a glimpse <laughs> at what Spider-Man's a, dealing with. It's a great moment because you have uh, at least a couple of pages. And when they do the reveal of the si- Sinister 60, is this big two-page spread and with all the villains in the background. Uh... And then the next page is this another two-pager, but this really complicated panel layout of dozens of tiny panels of them battling. Don't do are math you, are, you, are you checking if it's 60 panels? Just, just counting the panels right now. To, to see if it's 60 Don't panels. do math on the air. Um, but, yeah, so, like, when so, they do but, that... So it's, like, two, two, these two pages of two-page pan- two spreads doing completely different artistic endeavors, mm-hmm. uh, both difficult in different ways. Yeah, because um, with the Sinister 60 panel, the big spread, it's all of the characters in one single image, and then you switch to doing how many images is it? It is 60 panels on this two, on these so, two pages. For two. him fighting the Sinister 60, they put in 60 panels, which is so much work for an artist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, every time they have to draw anything, it's so much work. And I can't imagine what it took to draw 60. I bet if you count, there's 60 villains. Don't count. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure there's 60 villains in that image because that's the kind of special story that they're doing. And that that is so much extra work for an artist, right? I mean, artists talk about every time they have to do a, a team shot, it sucks <laughs> because that's, you know, just extra bodies that they have to put in. And the same is true for panels. You know, you have to draw new stuff. Yeah. Um... And with the the story in Spider Bite, it's also paced a little differently, partly because it's a full issue. Joe just counted sixty villains. It on is that in fact sixty spread. villains, and also the sixty All villains. I will say it was a trip through nostalgia of my childhood <laughs> reading because there's some very 1990s obscure villains that I remember reading about that are present on the uh, so uh, in the sixty. Yeah, so that's nothing. They are all different villains. It is yeah. uh, sixty two characters on that page. Yeah. Um, so with the pacing of this story. There are clues throughout that set up the revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one panel where uh, after they fight Doc Ock, Spider-Man's trapped under this rubble and he can't get out. And it's a clear homage to uh, 
Amazing Spider-Man 33. A very early Spider-Man. Yeah. That's a where classic. He, where he's trapped in rubble and forces motivates himself and forces himself out. And they, so they do the same thing here. And Spider-Man tries to get out and you can tell he's pretending. Yeah, somehow they get it into the art and, and the word balloons very well. Like, it's clearly communicated that this is a person acting yeah. like he's struggling to get out of this rubble. And ask Spider-Bite for help to get out. And they, can do, and they do it together. There are a lot of actually uh, big uh, full-page spreads. So... A lot of one-page spreads where it's just one image or one page, and then there's the two-page stuff. So there's a, a lot of big images in this, uh, but they need that for the pacing. They need those moments to show triumph and hope, and uh, that, that those are the moments that the story's really about. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, again, the, like, the transition to suddenly seeing that the whole city is just cardboard boxes, uh, and the villains are all just these hospital workers yeah, the or, hospital and friends workers and family and, and masks. Parents. His dad is still man. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's handled really well in terms of the art, but also, like you said, the pacing, where, like, okay, we're getting the right dollops of information, because it's not immediate uh, that suddenly everything is clearly all made up. It's as he's fighting Stiltman across this page, it goes from Stiltman grabbing the heart of New York and running away to now those are cardboard boxes as skyscrapers. And the, and you the, know. the dimensions of the cardboard keep shifting to get smaller and smaller. Yeah, yeah. they're saying, wow, Stiltman's never been this tall compared to the buildings. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then when he has the the one-on-one conversation with Spider-Bite, it's, it looks like... Um, almost uh, Toy Story uh, wallpaper, wallpaper clouds background. in the yeah. background uh, instead of real clouds uh, that are happening there. Um, so I think it's it's really impressive the uh, care to the craft of telling this story. Like, it's one thing to have the idea of how, okay, here's what the story is going to be. But you can tell every collaborator in getting the story onto the page was taken care of on, on every single panel, what this is going to look like and how, you know, what's going to be revealed now, how is this going to deepen the reader's understanding on the first read-through of what, what's actually going on and what kind of impact is going to happen from one panel to the next. And a part of that with how the revelations pace out actually does make you want to go back and reread it to see what the clues were, pace, were yeah, there before. because I'm not sure just, there's clues. Yeah, not just because it's a good story and you want that um, emotional feeling because if it's a negative emotional feeling... That's not a bad thing to experience through a comic book, through literature, or, or any other art form. Because it was Neil Gaiman, uh, in his Newbery Awards speech, who said, like, this art is inoculation against reality. Like, it's preparing you for when you actually have to experience this stuff. And if you have prepared yourself and uh, know, how, like, know how you handle it before, you'll be better prepared to cope with it in real life. Yeah, like, uh, you know, my kids getting to Harry Potter book four when Cedric Diggory dies... That's really important. Uh, and it's not at all the same kind of pain or emotional toll that the death of a real loved one is going to be. But having experienced that through the safety and distance of storytelling mm-hmm. is important for a child. I, I think sometimes we're, we, we um, are too safe in the yeah. art that mm-hmm. we give to children. Trying to protect them and, a little too much. And um, it's interesting the way they do that in Spider-Bite. They kind of convey that by showing how the pretend imagination scenario is presented as so real and authentic and um, and you're kind of establishing, it's like, okay, when the Sinister 60s show up, you're scared, right? You, <laughs> you know, the Spider-Bite is concerned. He's like, I don't think we can handle this. And he's, in his imagination world, saying, I experience fear. Yeah. And then, with Spider-Man's help, they can say, okay, you can face that fear in imagination, and if you can face your fear in imagination or story or anything like that, then... It's essentially saying, when you have to face it in real life, you know what that 
looks like and feels like. You know the shape of it, even if the sizes are different or, or the textures are different. You know, I've read a story where I felt sad that someone died. Mm-hmm. So when I, in real life, feel sad that someone dies, I know kind of the steps. I know the patterns, and I know that I'll get through it because I've gotten through, you know, a, a test run. Yeah. You know, of the that sort of thing. And it's really important for, for intense emotions like fear and anxiety and stress and, um, and, and, and sadness and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great point because in the story, they have it on the two levels. Uh, he learns how to face those fears as spider bite as part, spider bite as part of the game. And then that's really helping him to face his feels in real life. Uh, that he is afraid he's not going to wake up. And part of going through this is trying to help him deal with that. And the like when you turn to that two-page spread of the Sinister 60, it's such a great <laughs> moment of, like, uh, exact, like all of superheroes are obviously exaggerated. Like, that's the nature of superhero comic books. But that one is just so grandiose <laughs> and, and so big. It's like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> but it's perfect for a kid's imagination. Like, my kids got a bunch of Lego sets for Christmas, and the other day they were combining them, and they're like, this is going to be the most dangerous snow speeder. My once I got a snow speeder Lego <laughs> set ever, and they had attached like some mini Tie Fighter Legos. But then they also put on Harry Potter Dementors uh, <laughs> were, were were on the snow speeder, and they had all the Stormtrooper Lego minifigs that they could get onto it. And then they had it flying. And then my that that was my seven year old, my five year old put this all together. And then somehow my three year old was running around with a Luke Skywalker minifig, yelling, "I have the Skywalker lightsaber! I will win!" <laughs> <laughs> and he had the minifig that was chasing the most dangerous snow speeder is what they called it. And it's that idea of like, just, we're putting everything into you one. Got, you got your Harry Potter in my Star Wars. Yeah, but no, they, they love that. They love that mix. And this like Sinister 60 is that kind of childlike, like, okay, we're just going all in. We're, we're getting, grabbing every toy we have and they're all involved in this make-believe that we're playing right now. Yes, and then one of the things I noticed uh, looking at this time, um, you have all these characters, most of whom are from Spider-Man. And then you have Mephisto, who's Marvel Comics' de- devil character. One, like, one of. Like, what is he doing there? Do normal people know about Mephisto? <laughs> I mean, he's had some big moments with Spider-Man. Yeah. In terms of his continuity and lore. Like, but. What, what exactly do you have? Why do you exactly what? do you have the devil there? And, and they have Juggernaut, who is typically an X-Men villain. I'm like, is that a reference to Spider-Man and his amazing friends? And they're crossing no, 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 with the no, X-Men? It's no. Spider-Man and X-Force. Spider-Man no. number 18 and X-Force number 4 crossed over, I think. No, it's the classic Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut. A two-part Spider-Man story where he fought Juggernaut uh, this before the <laughs> yeah. X-Force one. And his solution was to bury Juggernaut in concrete. Okay, so we which, all which have is reference also, points. Which is also <laughs> in that Spider-Man yeah. and his amazing friends. This, this, um, we all have reference points for what this could have been alluding to. Uh, so, a successful illusion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, think, I, I guess he should be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, any... Uh, let's we see. do final thoughts for okay. 45. All right. Any final thoughts about these two stories at all? Um, I want to go back to the idea of sentimentality, sentimentalism. Um, I've, when I've taught humanities before and talking about art uh, in an intro to humanities course, uh, partly because I haven't taught this before, we, we talked about how uh, sentimentality in art isn't doesn't really make it art. If you want to put the quotes around it or put yeah. the capital A on that, it, you know, art is not sentimental. Um, but now rethinking that many years later, and also through stories like this, it's like, yeah, they're manipulating my emotions. I can recognize why and how they're doing it. 
That's not a bad thing. And it doesn't mean it's not art. When yeah, it's there. It, it doesn't mean it's not art, and that means that uh, it's a good reason that these stories exist in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think both of these stories. I mean, I think Spider Bite is definitely an homage to um, the older story from the eighties. I think there's kind of a through line there, and it's good to recreate that story in a modern context. I think that's a, a strong choice, and and to adapt it. I mean the. I, I say it like it's it's copying it. It's really not. Like we've talked about, you know, the the one from the eighties is uh, it includes a retelling of Spider Man's origin. It's it's establishing you know this this character motivation, some of his um, skills and abilities and technology and all that stuff. And that's not happening in Spider Bite. Spider Bite is much more about the meaning of this character. What what does he mean? Why does Spider Man matter? Why does belief in someone that you don't actually interact with matter um, because you know, all of the the stuff that you get with spider bite is, you know, he believes that Spider-Man is the heart of New York. And that was before Spider-Man came to visit him. Right. He, yeah. he has hope and he believes in Spider-Man, you know, even when Spider-Man is just a character to him, you know, yes, he sees him out there, you know, swinging through the city, but he doesn't interact with him. And so the idea and the emotional attachment that you get from something like that, where it's just the experience of, you know, yes, they matter. Even if you, um, even if you don't have an actual connection to them, even if you just have that pretend connection, you know, that stuff matters, you know, that makes a difference in your life. The things that you create in your mind. I mean, there's a reason that like meditation and visualizations are used as therapeutic tools because thinking about something helps you process the reality when it comes. And that's an excellent, I think it's an excellent point about that reiteration of the story that it's similar. It's not the same as before, but they're repeating mm-hmm. uh, certain elements. Um, and that is important because uh, even though The Boy Who Collected Spider-Man is a classic and now is readily available, it doesn't mean people are going to search it out. Mm-hmm. People like what's new. What's the next issue? Uh, that's what really drives the market right now is people continuing to collect the next issue. It's not that they go back and read what came before. Uh, and so reiterating that message... Uh, in a different story is important. And also a uh, separate point here, they, they have done studies um, and we've talked about how sentimentality helps you prepare you to feel certain emotions. It also reading stories like this increases empathy. They have done studies where uh, they've measured the section of the brain that creates empathy. I don't know exactly. <laughs> or, or at least I'm you not, can see triggered when empathy is being I'm felt, right? I'm a neuroscientist. <laughs> yeah. Um, but reading literature, reading stories actually increases that center of the brain. It helps you have more empathy for others. Yeah, that's been, I think, well-documented by psychological studies at this point. And then there's other concepts. Um, there's a concept... So when I worked at, at BYU Radio, I did, you know, interview... I would I would just scour the internet for what's the what's the interesting psychological study that I, I could talk to somebody who's, you know, dealing with that. Um, and one of them was specifically about superheroes, and it was um, called a parasocial bond. And it, it's essentially... Um, there are benefits to seeing positive things in the portrayal of a person that you have no actual contact with. Um, and so when it, it basically for part of the study, they took people and they said, you know, do you feel an emotional connection to Batman or Spider-Man or, or superheroes? And then they said, okay, well, we're going to inundate you with images of that superhero. And then, you know, give you a strength test, just a grip strength test. And when they were inundated with, if they had that, that strong connection and they were inundated with, strong images of Spider-Man or Batman, you know, them doing strong things versus doing weak things um, or, or, you know, weak portrayals. The people 
gripped more strongly when they had observed the strong portrayals. And so our connections to these characters have real world consequences. And so when you have a a positive connection to Spider-Man and a good Spider-Man movie comes out and everyone's a fan of Spider-Man, you feel joy and satisfaction because you have that one-sided connection. You know, you have some degree of identification with if you're a fan of something, but um, if negative things come out, then that has a negative impact on you, which also is true of celebrities, which gets more dicey because celebrities sometimes fail so, us. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, how have you been feeling recently with all the X-Men films that have been coming out in the side of the X-Men? Uh, <laughs> has it hurt? <laughs> I I never imagined I'd say this, but I have not seen <laughs> the, 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 the last, last few. The last couple X-Men films, which that was the subject of my dissertation. Those were the comics I collected most when I was a kid was X-Men. And I loved the 90s X-Men cartoon. Uh, and I was really excited when there were X-Men films uh, coming out initially, but then it just kind of petered out. I'm hoping for a renaissance. The X-Men renaissance and, and X-Menaissance is <laughs> is needed uh, for, well, for, for, Kevin, in Hollywood. Kevin Feige's in charge now. We can yeah. probably hope for that. Who knows? Someday. It, it, we'll see what's going to happen. My fingers crossed. You know, and, and like with all these films, I'm always hoping the next one's going to be great. Uh, I just... <laughs> Uh, how much of that is hope and how much of that is expectation varies pretty significantly depending on the property we're talking about. Um, I, I very much enjoyed both these stories. I, I, um, I had the the kid who collects Spider Man in a trade paper back that was called uh, the very best of Spider Man, um, and it just had those those you know that eleven page story with, probably where it belongs with a mix of other things. Uh, and if Marvel you know does you know more co- of those kinds of collections of like here here's highlights from the entire run. I think Spider-Bite is going to be now inserted into that kind of, uh, you know, omnibus packaging. And I, I feel like if there was an opportunity, if if Marvel in their films did not feel the need to perpetually tease the next film in those um, end of end of credit scenes, that would make a great end credit oh, scene I was, I, with Tom Holland. Tom Holland delivered, like, doing the pause. He would nail that. Yeah. That pause of I'm processing all this information and I'm deciding what the next heroic yeah. thing I need to do yeah. is. Yeah, and, and so you could do something that's a mix of these different stories because yeah. you could also get some of that exposition that they're never going to put well, in the movies at uh, this stage. Actually, Tom Holland has never done the origin of Spider-Man. It's true. They yeah. could do it this way. Yeah, yeah. just summarize it in, in a five-minute scene in the, in the mid-credits or end credits yeah. and just say, it's like, look, this one's not about the next movie. We just want it to be about Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 239, when we talked about Spider-Man Blue, episode number 164, when we talked about Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane, or episode number 28, when we talked about the original Spider-Man origin in Amazing Fantasy number 15. You can reach us by emailing Feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Autocorrect. Nope. Okay. <clears throat> no, you just read it wrong. Yeah, I just read that one. Where else? <laughs> that one was on me. Not autocorrect.